This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is Indigo Willing. I am a sociologist. I'm also a Vietnamese adoptee. I live on the land of the Yugara and Turbul peoples in Mianjin, Brisbane, Australia. And I am really excited to be chatting today on the Vietnamese podcast. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Indigo. Thank you for coming on. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Such a great question to ask anyone from Vietnam, I think, because we have such incredibly different lives and there's so many twists and turns for us, particularly if we're from the Vietnam War generation, because there's a lot of um, messiness, there's a lot of separation, there's a lot of sort of, you know, mobility for many of us, particularly if we're forced migrants. So um, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to me is a, a place marker for me. So I might have many experiences and I might identify in a whole lot of ways, but the Vietnamese identity for me is a placeholder where I always can just rest, I think, <laughs> mm-hmm. and just think, okay, I'm many things. I'm We're all read in different ways, whether we need to have careers or we need to, you know, we're called misfits for whatever, you know, fun things that we do, um, whether we're, you know, uh, meeting goals or we're somebody's partner or we're not. I think just being Vietnamese is a very soulful, restful place for me. It's somewhere where I can feel grounded and feel in touch with more than just myself. I feel like it's a connection point to community, to ancestors, to history. Um, and it doesn't have to be a really clean connection. It doesn't have to be incredibly um you know, knowledgeable, or I, I don't need to be fluent in, in Vietnamese or any of that. It's just a really nice place to think um, this is a very strong part of who I am, regardless of what I do. It just is a very strong part of me. Before we get into the other aspects, the wonderful as- aspects of your life and work, um, I want to get into some fun aspects of your life, which is skating. <laughs> Sure, I love talking about skateboarding. <laughs> so apparently you got into it a little bit later in life, right? At 41? You, um, yeah, correct. That, yeah, I yeah. started really late in life. And did you ever skateboard before then? No, not really. <laughs> I just, um, yeah, I grew up around a surfing beach and a lot of the guys skated. There were um, really surfer dudes with the blonde hair and the you know, blue eyes and um, very, very sort of graceful, but very masculine. And, you know, here I was, this tiny Vietnamese girl (laughs) who was very shy. And it was quite racist when I grew up, just for context for any listeners, I grew up um, in the 1970s and 80s uh, during the, you know, Vietnam War migrations. And 
you know, where I was, there wasn't many Vietnamese or many Asian people, to be honest. So it was hard enough just walking down the street, going to the shop to buy something to eat without being abused in some way or called silly names. I thought, you know, then sort of pushing myself into this very masculine, really cool subculture of which had a lot of um, gatekeeping in itself, I guess. I thought, I just don't have the, <laughs> I don't have the, I don't have the strength. I've just got to get through um, you know, get through high school, get through working and then later get through uni um, and really find myself before I have the strength to do something that's sort of um, different for, for women. It's not so different now, but it certainly was for a long time. So I, I didn't start until I actually had um, studied, worked, got a PhD um, and then had a child and was a parent and then my son started primary school. I just had more time. So for many people, I'm like a reverse skater. Often they they skateboard when they're young and, and really go for it. And then they get a job and settle down and they don't skate as much. And I was the opposite. So I thought, oh, now's the time. Now I've I've done my duties. I've tried to, you know, um, contribute and, and study and do all the things that I think I should make the most of my opportunities in life. And now I'm really ready just for a bit of me time and a bit of fun time and you know, I think this will be good for my um, confidence and just um, ticking off another chapter of which I had wanted to write, I guess, in my life. And, and how um, did you actually get into it? Amazingly, I have um, friends from all over the place and particularly with Vietnamese people, you kind of all know each other. You get a bit insulted being Vietnamese when someone says, oh, you must know such and such. And you go, how dare you? But yes, I do know them. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so in part of the Vietnamese, I, I started asking around the Vietnamese community, like, does anyone skateboard or know someone that skateboards? And then somebody knew a photographer that was Vietnamese that took pictures in skate parks. And bit by bit, um, they found somebody in the arts that actually knew a um, filmmaker that skateboarded. And she's not Vietnamese, but she is from a um, background that's very marginalised and she was a bit scared to go back to the skate park. She already knew how to skateboard, but she found that environment very intimidating. So we decided to start skating together and we went and got lessons with um, children, <laughs> like these free-to-learn lessons with little kids. And it's like, yes, we're grown women, but what you know, we feel safe here. And so, yeah, we really looked for occasions where we could just... Um, be supported and feel safe and just start rolling. And then once you get a bit of confidence in the skate park, you just can, um, you know, you tend to rock up by yourself and make new friends and so on. But I, I really found it through the sort of arts and music community because skateboarding has, you know, it's more than just rolling on a board. It's kind of like a, you know, it's a subculture with music and fashion and filmmakers and all sorts of things. So it's almost like a Vietnamese community. You know, like once you hook in, you know, like you've got like endless people you can have coffee with any day or hang out with and just yeah, have something in common with. Were you worried about breaking bones or anything <laughs> when you start? Because I think about that. I'm like, I was, I was reading your, you know, Instagram page and I'm like, that is some dangerous stuff to be starting in our 40s, right? But, you know, it's you're sweet. like doing ollie, ollieing and, you know, you're grinding on the rails and I'm like, what? This is all <laughs> like, it's pretty courageous for somebody of our, you know, of our generation to start now. I mean, I don't dare do it. And I skated when I was a kid and I looked <laughs> at it and I'm just like, wow, this is like bone chilling, you know? <laughs> 
it is, isn't it? I think so. I think you're absolutely right. That but any you don't sensible think about person, it. yeah, sensible people should, at our age, probably take up, I don't know, card games or something, bit of poker in the evening with your mates. Probably, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. Um, at the same time, I feel, without it being sort of, um, you know, biologically innate or anything, I feel that Vietnamese people are very tough. We have a um, a real drive. And particularly from from my generation, from uh, anyone that came out through the war, you know, you are very you're very tough. You're tough as nails. You might be even if you're super feminine like me and you're super small or whatever. Um, so much of life's hurdles, you know, have been thrown your way, and there's just this constant persistence and determination just to get the job done and no nonsense. And like that really helps with skateboarding. You know, you can hesitate and you can worry and you can like be defeated by your failures but I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily in my my makeup I think my my persona or characteristics or whatever they are traits um are very much just trying to do things that are difficult and get through it or they don't phase me as much as they might others so skateboarding is like that too you don't get any of those tricks without practice without falling without hurting yourself occasionally but at the same time, it's um it's a very rewarding process because there's no um, fakery around it. You can't fake getting a trick. You know, a skateboard is very truthful to you and mm-hmm. you get what you put in. And so I really like that. And there are some very famous Asian skateboarders as well, which was really cool. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think there's a, a good list of a whole bunch. There's Jerry Hsu, there's Daiwan Song, um, there's Vietnamese skaters. Um, so... Uh, yeah, you can really just also find role models, I guess, in this sport. Whereas if, I don't know if you're doing basketball or something, it's a lot harder to find as many idols in that sport. And that that can be something that makes you determined in yourself as well. But definitely the the skateboarding to me just seemed like a really nice way to break stereotypes as well. Because I, I've had to grow up, um, as we'll probably discuss, I was adopted and, and grew up in a non-Vietnamese family and um, really had to work through people's stereotypes and prove them wrong just to go about my day. So I think skateboarding was the same to me. It was like, you know, it's it's marketed t- towards masculinity and, you know, um, danger, but I think that anybody can do it if they, they get a lot of enjoyment from it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just, you know, let myself not be held back by stereotypes or, you know, fears that, you know, you can overcome. Your training as a sociologist... And as an academic had probably crept into sort of like the skates, uh, skate parks when you're like now active in it. I'm imagining at some point, does the academics and the sport kind of fuse together in your mind? Or did you go into it with saying, I'm going to study the world of skating as I would sociology? Oh, such a good question. I think some people are, do see studying skateboarding as a calling, but for most of us, we've become academics first. So there, there are a bunch of academics that write about skateboarding and who are skateboarders. And uh, in 2019, they actually had their first skateboarding academic conference, which is where I met many skateboarders that I, I write with or do work with sociologically. But I, I think we're all skateboarders first. And then because we are trained to see the world in particular ways and particularly when it comes to things like, you know, gender equity or 
discrimination, we've already got some kind of lenses and tools to sort of unpack something that doesn't feel quite right or something that could be improved or something that's working really well. So, yeah, I think you just, as a sociologist, it gives you a lens onto the world of which then you make sense of things. And so um, initially I'd started skateboarding to get away from work. I thought, oh, no, like somebody said, you should write about skateboarding. I'm like, oh, no, like this is my fun time. Don't ruin it. And then, of course, you know, you live in the world that you you write about and, you know, I was finding that some of the women were getting picked on or people were being discriminatory about people's sexuality or their you know, gender or whatever. And I thought, you know, I I just want to speak the truth and make a space that's, again, you know, comfortable for um, for me and my friends. And my friends want to do that too. So, you know, we can create spaces where we can just be ourselves, even if it doesn't change the world. It's our space to, you know, make comfortable and um, sometimes those little steps can really resonate. So yeah, (laughs) definitely. That that leads me to think about at our age, when we see injustice at the skate park on the playground, we would handle it different than we would in our twenties. So have you encountered bullying or, you know, little young people antics and you had to go and really make it right? I think the the community can sway many ways and um, young people are actually, younger people are actually really good teachers. And um, there's a a skateboarder that does a lot of amazing work, Kim Woozy. I think she's from Taiwan. But she sort of talked a long time ago about when you're our age, when you're adults, you should look for youth mentors. So not somebody that's young to mentor, but somebody that's youth full to mentor you to keep you out of your how you get stuck or to let you move with the times let you learn the terminology that's respectful that has changed and I feel like at the skate park I'm not looking for kids to teach me but they teach me so much um in terms of what's fair in terms of letting go of a lot of assumptions and so that part's been really cool uh sometimes you do need to also intervene or step up when some people are being um, unfair or discriminatory. And, um, you know, I'd say the majority of people are pretty fair in skateboarding and just want to go there and skate and have fun. But, of course, some people will be uh, carrying prejudices and things that they think are funny um, towards minorities. You know, you have to sort of say that's not, you know, that's not on. So, um, yeah, there were a couple of guys that were being very transphobic and, you know, they were trying to make themselves look funny and I really called them out and I was ready to challenge them. And um, I don't really condone violence, but I was very, you know, I thought if we're going to have to have a fight and I'm tiny, I'll, I'll, I'll fight you because really? I, I don't want this person picked on, you know, because you, you're better at looking after other people than yourself. No. So another instance where I, I think it's, you know, I just froze was that I was there and there were some, you know, very, very well-dressed hipster kind of, kids and um when I say kids I mean like people in their 20s and one of them said oh he doesn't like Asian people and that you know um Asian people are you know really annoying when they talk in their language and stuff and normally I'd stand up if they were picking on somebody else but because they were picking on me I was really stunned and um I I I just didn't have anything to say and I, I probably would have just gone home and cried but an indigenous skateboarder got up and just called that person out immediately and said you know like you know, told them where to go in like very strong language and was ready to fight them. So I thought, oh, like sometimes you don't have the energy to 
to protect yourself because you're carrying certain wounds and traumas and baggage from a lifetime of this. So you're probably out of fuel and other people have the fuel for you. So I think it's it's reciprocal. You won't always be able to stand up for your particular marginalization or when you're being discriminated against, but when you see it in somebody else and you recognize and you remember that feeling, you're you're empowered and you're energized. So um yeah, I found that really interesting. I was very disappointed in myself with the racist. I thought I'm gonna be tough if I ever find a racist in the skate park, but I'm not. I'm I'm well, I wasn't that time. You know, I was really shocked and you know, sort of felt like a five year old again and Stunned. wanted to go home and cry. So yeah, you know, you just never know. Yeah. Is um, skating and the skate culture in Australia similar to the skate culture in the US where it's predominantly a street culture? Uh, because and I ask, hopefully, you know, it's a naive question because uh, hip hop culture in Vietnam is a little bit different from the hip hop culture in the U.S. You know, um, a lot of the kids are not really from the streets, but you know, the adoption of uh, hip hop culture in Vietnam has taken on a new form of of expression, and it, they borrow from the street culture in the U.S., but it's not entirely really street culture per se, the, the way street culture in hip hop in the U.S. is. And I'm wondering if the same translation in the skating world is the same uh, in Australia. Well, that's such a good question. I, um, I often talk to people and I say, even though Americans speak English and we speak English over here and a lot of our food and clothes are the same, there's such enormous cultural differences when I hang out with Americans yeah. or vice versa. And they're very, they're very subtle sort of behavioral things. Like Australians are friendly, but they don't befriend you. Whereas Americans are so great hospitality. Like if you're a stranger, they will like say, Oh, let me drive you here or let me show you around town. Let me take you to the best burger place. And you feel like you've, you know, you immediately got these new friends. Whereas in Australia, people are friendly. But you almost have to have gone to primary school with them and, you know, live with them like through your childhood for them to trust you and like you that much. You really got to earn, like I've heard this from uh, travellers all the time. So um, in skateboarding, the Australians are, are pretty friendly and you can go and skate with them and, and that's a really good side of the Australian thing and I find that same with America. In terms of, um, so that friendliness I think translates well, but it hasn't always been that way. It used to be very territorial like yeah. surfing. So if you weren't from that skate park and you're not a local, people would yeah. kind of feel a bit sus and check you up for a long time. And um, people have been very good to me skateboarding. Like I'm a mum, I'm middle-aged, I'm a woman, and I started at a time when none of that was really that common at the park and people were really great to me. But I did have one guy say to me, oh, you've got to skate here for about three months till you earn your, your you know, till people will really warm up to you. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to last three months. <laughs> it's really hard skateboarding, but let's see, kind of thing. And I thought that's that's that that's their thing. It's it's cool. Um, in terms of street culture, um, like I'm not. I just know my little world and my experiences, and I kind of um, learnt to skate around men. Like I run a women's, I co-run a women's skate network for women and non-binary people and for queer people um, because we couldn't find a space where we were the norm and we were the majority. But I did actually learn through the dudes. So my experience of skateboarding has been very masculine. And um, there's a skateboarder called Kristina Belling, who's very, very influential in skateboarding, done amazing things. And she describes her experience skateboarding like being raised by wolves because she too sort of, mm -hmm. you know, learned to skate amongst the dudes. And you learn 
different ways to skate. Like I don't wear all the protective gear. I don't wear a helmet. I don't wear all the pads. And I, I do like to street skate. Um, whereas a lot of the mums that join with each other and in, in very sort of, you know, more mixed environments or very uh, women-centric learn-to-skate spaces tend to skate transition and bowl and, um, you know, they wear more safety gear, they're much more safety conscious, they're much um, more, you know, they have less defensiveness when in the park. They might see it the way that you would go into a tennis court or, you know, go to the beach and see the sand, whereas I always see it as quite, you know, I've got to sort of assess various risks and see who's the local and who's, you know, like, you know, I don't want to skate this way because that will make me look girly and like all this silly baggage that I have. Um, so, yeah, there is there is like different cultures in skateboarding. There's many cultures and um, I've definitely seen a few. It's almost like, you know, being Vietnamese and being adopted, you see things from the outside a little bit or you, you see you have like multiple ways you can see something um, and also there, there are much more people coming into skateboarding now. It used to be a real sanctuary. If if you didn't have a good family or if you didn't fit into society, you would gravitate to a subculture and you'd really fit in at the skate park. Um, and that's great. That still exists. I really feel that a lot of people turn to that. I definitely feel as a, a person that's been Vietnamese and hasn't always fitted in and has um, had to put up with a lot of um, nonsense and everything that skateboarding has definitely been somewhere where I've been able to just be myself in many ways. Um, but now there's these little kids that are coming and they're going to go to the Olympics one day. <laughs> Their parents drive them around like it's a sport and it's it's now a, both a subculture and it's an elite sport. So you have a mix of demographics. And to be honest, that's probably a very healthy thing yeah. in the skate spaces because it stops people being too insular and thinking that their way is the only way to be a skateboarder. So, yeah, it is It is a bit big of a mixed bag. And I think um, we have so much to um, enjoy about it. You know, I really think if you're a, you're a kid that can just get some wheels, you know, and there are a lot of people that have been um, unhoused or homeless, they've had addiction problems, they've had all sorts of things and found skateboarding and really found themselves and blossomed through that. So I like what skateboarding does for all types of people. We're going to switch gears here a little bit. How old were you when you got to Australia? Um, I would have been around 13 months and a bit. So my orphanage papers, I'm from an orphanage in um, Saigon, and then I was moved to World Vision Hospital. So if you know World Vision, the charity, they had like a baby hospital. And then I was flown overseas with a couple of boys that were um, getting an operation in Australia. So like you know, some sort of humanitarian mission where they were flying children um, out of the water, you know, look after them and and maybe they needed operations. And I was on that flight. Um, so, yeah, I was really, really young. And on my orphanage papers, one has me born in October and another has me born in January, which I think makes me older. So I always go for the October one. One of them makes me younger anyway. And I like being a Libra and like in the astrology. So I think fine, I'll just go with the, the January, I mean, to the October one. Um, and yeah, it was it was definitely an unusual time because it was 1972 and I arrived oof, uh, December 23, so two days before Christmas into Australia. Mm. That uh, was way before Operation Babylift or is it around the same time? No, before. Yeah. It was before. So uh, Operation Babylift was 1975 when... Um, the the fall of Saigon and 
um, all the planes were evacuating and they they sort of evacuated quite a lot of children, thousands of children on planes. Um, and then, yeah, then you didn't really have migration until the 80s. With I mean, I should, I should know all this stuff because um, <laughs> no, Operation no. Baby Lift and people who've been on the show and, you know, Pardon my ignorance, but uh, no, so... no, no. We're we're like a tiny part of the Vietnamese diaspora. We're we're often forgotten. I was really surprised you want to chat to us. It's like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> no, I was. Yeah, no, I I've never met um, somebody with such a a, a a a thick history of understanding the Vietnamese adoption history. Somebody who's really you know, focus their lives on it. Not only were you an actual uh, adoptee of that time, but somebody who spent your life um, really studying about it and understanding all of the things that you're quoted in a, in a really fascinating uh, book, uh, Some More Sisters by Erica Hi um, Miyazaki. And it's just, yes. And so your name came up in the one of the chapters. And um, I was like, whoa, this is, I have to reach out. And you know, reached out to Sheila and she um she pointed me so shout out to Sheila thank you for for this introduction and um I I'm so curious about all the things that Erica brought up in the book adoption is not what we think not what the layman thinks it is the layperson thinks it's a wonderful thing that these big countries like Australia and the US does for these little small countries like Vietnam, but in actuality, there's a lot of darkness uh, that's surrounding adoption processes. Oh, yeah. it's, um, it's Well, firstly, Erika Hayasaki's book, uh, Somewhere Sisters, is, is very hauntingly beautiful, really in-depth researched um, non-fiction book about twins that have been separated and reunite. And it pulls on so many <laughs> heartstrings and has so many historical um, legacies that it sort of taps into in terms of understanding how these children from Vietnam, you know, end up growing up in Illinois or somewhere like, you know, in the Midwest of America and um, connecting with their family is just so interesting because, you know, they, they generally, like myself, we don't be, we're not raised in Vietnamese culture and learning Vietnamese language. So there are enormous, you know, um, enormous losses and uh, gaps of connection that adoptees experience um, through, through you know, being transferred across not just countries but also cultures and generally races as well. So most of us have been raised by white adoptive parents. Um, it's been quite remarkable. So we talked about Sheila before. Sheila Pham is a Vietnamese um, icon in Australia and she's what I call a Vietnamese Vietnamese but a Vietnamese Vietnamese Australian <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, there's Vietnamese adoptees and we weren't necessarily growing up with Vietnamese families close to us or the culture or the language then what I call the Vietnamese Vietnamese Australians um, are Vietnamese people that speak the language they've come out maybe 1.5 generation second generation and beyond but you know, they've generally grown up with parents in the house and uh, lived in areas where there's a strong Vietnamese influence. Um, and then there's, like, you know, obviously the the Vietnamese in Vietnam. So, again, like another sort of, you know, community and, and population that we're all connected to, um, but not. So there are all these, like, separations when you're adopted. So we're not quite Vietnamese migrants in the traditional sense, and we're definitely not um, Vietnamese nationals in the way that you'd grow up in Vietnam, 
uh, amongst your own, you know, country and close to your ancestors where they were buried or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a cultural journey. It's an emotional um, kind of very fraught at times experience. It can be an identity. I like to think of adoption. Somebody else taught me this to think of adoption more as an experience than an identity because you can get very stuck in that and be very stereotyped or feel very alone sometimes in that. Um, but, yeah, the typical story about adoption is like a fairy tale. You know, you go from rags to riches, maybe a poor, you know, a story about uh, a, a poor family and you're adopted by a middle-class family with, you know, all these things that are material uh, maybe the country is stereotyped as being, you know, a, a very sort of, you know, abject place of, you know, just poverty without all, any of the beauty or the history or whatever going on there to this sort of wealthy country. So already you're, you're sort of written into this script of what should be like a fairy tale with a happy ending that's very linear and simple. And, of course, as we know from America's book and from um, my community experiences and the people that I'm, you know, very connected to who are adoptees, it's not that. You know, when you, you're sort of transposed into this different culture with people that are different to you, even if they love you as their, their own or they try and make you fit in, um, society sees you as different. So you always have to balance how other people see you, not just how your significant others see you and yourself. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a whole bunch of things that can be very, um, I don't know, is it unrequited? There can be many things that are un, unresolved as well as, the, uh, you know, just the trauma of losing your family and being moved from your culture and being separated from extended relatives and all of that. There's so many unanswered questions with adoption and a lot of things that are unresolved as well. So you're kind of living uh, both with, um, you're kind of walking the earth with these ghosts of the past, with these sort of, you know, puzzles that you don't know if you're ever going to solve. And sort of also just carrying carrying a particular weight of um, loss and not knowing. I find that mm. is something in adoption that isn't regularly talked about. You know, uh, many times on this show, people come on, um, they're clearly second generation because their parents are first generation and they call themselves first generation, mm. right? And it's a, mis you know, it's a misnomer because the first generation that touches down on new soil is the first generation. Our parents mm -hmm. are the first generation. And the kids that they have is the second generation, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's this notion um, of 1.5, which is the kids that come as little babies and are not fully, uh, they're not born here, but they might as well have been born here, so it's 1.5. But when I think about your story, when I think about Vietnamese babies that arrive, isn't it? Would it be that they're actually 0.5? That's excellent. <laughs> That's amazing. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, but I'm listening to what you're saying, and I'm like imagining, well, the people that brought you here were not of Vietnamese descent. Hmm. And then you are not quite born here, so you can't be the first. Hmm. But then you're a baby, and so you, you're just half of sort of like this you're in between these two cultures, really. So it just would be like a, you're like the half generation, which is a thing that um, would signify that you were not brought here by Vietnamese, Vietnamese parents. Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I've, I've never sort of thought of it that way, but that's, 
very perfect way to describe um, <laughs> to describe what how how to classify us, I guess, because we we tend to be called one point five gen um, because there were a whole bunch of kids that came out as refugees that may or may not have had family with them um, and grew up, yeah, sort of you know grew up, but then they weren't born on Australian soil or you know foreign soil. Um, but you're right. There, there's you're not bringing there's culture sort of, with you. Yeah, there's this sort of you know where where the beginning yeah. of of the migration story, uh, given how we got here for Vietnam the Vietnameseness. You're right, and I always feel like we are Vietnamese, where we have a Vietnameseness that is a little bit more unique um, than the general experiences of second gen, one point five, and first gen. But there's no denying that we. Um, it's such a central part of who we are, you know, to to um, think about, you know, well, who are your ancestors, even genetic history, like, you know, yeah. if you've got diabetes or something, you know, like the doctor always says, oh, have you got new family history? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, oh. but, like, it's in Vietnam. Go give me a plane ticket and I'll go ask some, like, some people, like, do we have diabetes or I don't know. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Before we get into the technical aspects of um, some of these questions that I have, I want to know how an adoption situation where Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt went to Vietnam or Cambodia or Africa to adopt these kids, is that generally considered in the adoptee the adoption world as a good thing or a bad thing, or are there nuances that we can discuss? Uh, it's it's a very um, controversial question that many people feel very undecided about and some people feel very, very strongly about in terms of what I call celebrity adoptions. So the research that I've done um, as a sociologist, so for my master's I looked at Vietnamese adoptees for my PhD, I looked at adoptive parents who adopt children overseas, but some of the other research I've done has been on how people perceive celebrity adoptions, so the Angelina Jolies and Madonnas of this world. And, um, you know, it's really interesting. The adoptive parents that I spoke to don't even approve of these celebrities. They think that they make it look very superficial um, and they're wondering how the child can stay so connected to the, the, the history given you know, the enormous um, disparity between the, the wealth of the celebrities and the, the situations where they are removed from often. And, um, you know, I think it's 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 very messy. I don't think celebrity adoption should be seen as any better than ordinary adoptions for starters, and we're already trying to problematise what that experience is and where it can be improved. If not, you know, things can be radically changed to make it, you know, more child-centric and, you know, keep the child... Um, you know, their experiences, you know, much more to the forefront of what they need. And for the celebrity ones, it really is that fairy tale from rags to riches story again, which is everything my 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 most important work that I've written about. When when I say most important, most important thing that I feel like was I've been really driven to write. Right. To unpack that fairy tale mythology around adoption that you're like Cinderella and, you know, this magical being <laughs> comes and showers you in beautiful clothes and everything's going to be perfect. And I feel that that's the way that adoptions are perceived in the media. I often find it very contradictory or painful or just unusual that such a wealthy family like the Jolie, Angelina Jolie and Pitts or whoever it is, 
that some very wealthy and adopts don't seem to do much for the family. They have enough money to keep that family together. They could, you know, support a whole village to stay together with no family separations, and yet it's still very them-centric. It's parent-centric. They want to build a family with these children who aren't always necessarily orphans either. They have aunts, they have uncles, they have, you know, they have other family of which with the kind of wealth and resources that, you know, those celebrities have, they could definitely uh, do it differently. Mm. You know, they, they don't necessarily need to separate a child and raise them as their own as if a biological family you know they can they can think about other ways to empower those children and keep them connected to their family and maybe maybe some do but we only really hear about them rescuing children and I, I said in quotation marks that idea of rescuing them you know sort of um you know whisking them away to you know a wealthier nation and a wealthier household and it's meant to be better. And we know, well, we don't know, but I think there are accusations out at the moment against Brad Pitt being abusive yeah. and, you know, the Hollywood movie star not wanting him to, you know, so even with all that wealth and money and good looks, you know, like you can't guarantee these children are, are having, you know, a um, superior family experience to, you know, being um, raised by good care in Vietnam by Vietnamese people. So, yeah, I think there are nuances always, but I, I definitely think we should be very wary of anything that tries to paint celebrity adoptions as this sort of fairy tale rescue narrative. I think that's very, very dangerous and very colonial. At what point in your life did you realize, I mean, at what point in your, your mind did you realize, wait a minute, I was not born here and I come from another place? That's such a good question because a lot of the kids these days, say from um, African nations like Ethiopia, they come over adopted quite older. They might be six. Yeah. They come over with sibling groups, so they might come over with brothers and sisters. And this is why saying this whole celebrity adoption could be done very differently. Um, but when I when I was adopted, I think I was about aged five, and it was very much a time when people would try and assimilate you, but not not for evil intentions to be malicious, but they thought that was the best way to adopt anybody is raise you as if you're a natural born child to them. And I started school and people were like very, very, you know, like um, puzzled or, you know, people very racist. And I had to ask my mum, I said, if, if I'm your daughter, why did you have to fly to Vietnam during a war to have me? Why didn't you just have me here? It would have been easier. And then they had to explain to me that I was adopted. So I, I didn't know I was adopted until other kids pointed it out. So as oh, soon as wow. you start to socialise, you know, then you realise that there's some kind of, you know, issue going on or you are different. And, yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised and I cried. And then they gave me this book um, called I'm Adopted because they must have been anticipating they would need to have this conversation one day. And so I looked at the book and the book was really lovely and wholesome and everything, but it was like a white kid that was being adopted. And I thought, well, they've got it easy. Like, damn. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> I relate to this book slightly, but dude, you've got like, you haven't got any health issues. I've the got. Point here. <laughs> yeah, wow. So you got like so much to discover as an adopted child of a different race, like yeah. transracially adopted. You know, you, you've got to find out first that you haven't got that, that, um, mythology of the perfect family of where there's no breakages or anything, not that breakages are bad, but, you know, you are 
you, you're made to believe in Hollywood, in Disney, that there's a certain type of family that's the ideal family. And adoption keeps stripping that back and stripping that back. And then transracially, then it starts slapping you. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> you know, like a punching bag. And then, and then you add the war and you add like the difficulty of trying to reconnect with where you're from. It's quite a, quite a lot to take on as a five-year-old um, child. And you do it, you know, that's why I'm saying I'm good at skateboarding. Like you just got to get through it, you know, like, um, or, or you don't, you know, I think you get stuck. So, and you've got to find a way, like you've got to find solutions to like the way that you feel, but also, you know, whatever's happening to you that isn't right. And you, 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 I think when I say you just got to do it and get through it, it's not that I'm particularly brave in any way. Like I can freeze and be really, you know, like, awfully um but you know be awfully frightened um but what I mean is that you don't have other people from your Vietnamese heritage or racial background to help you through a lot of tough things so when people would be racist to me and my parents who are white and my brothers who are white would say oh you know they're just jealous of you or you know they um I wear glasses and they make fun of me and you think oh you know like it's not the same like that's not very helpful <laughs> like I dig that you have felt a bit you know picked on or whatever but and you know that's nice they're jealous but they're not really jealousy is a bad thing when they make you feel inferior I'm not sure they're jealous um (laughs) but it's a nice one kind of you know explanation so you really got to work it out you got to work out being discriminated against and finding some kind of resilience and satisfactory way to cope with that by yourself or with you know, with not like the deep empathy that you would from other having Asian brothers and sisters or say or relatives or siblings, for example. Um, and then when I was growing up, Viet- Vietnam was very stereotyped as this you know barbaric place of abject poverty where you know there are always little men in pajamas putting like nice handsome white men in bamboo cages and hitting them. And you know, it's, it's a war. Like no war looks nice. Like whatever war you want to choose, they're they're not great places to be. But I never learned anything about Vietnamese literature, Vietnamese art. We're one of the most literary nations or, you know, peoples in the, in, it just it was these really beautiful long legends. And that's why I wrote, which, you know, Erika Hayasaki put in her book about, you know, this story about from fairy tales to the diaspora. And I, I looked at Vietnamese mythology about this legend of, a, you know, a handsome prince and a beautiful fairy princess that fell in love and had children. But because they were from very different terrains the the you know the dragon king was you know from the earth and the fairy was from the mountains or something they had to separate and each took of their 100 children they had they took 50 children each and separated them and then the story is about this endless separation yet feeling of connection that vietnamese people have because it's it's essentially like the mythology of the viet the birth of the vietnamese people this fairy tale myth of a dragon king and a fairy and and you know there are very some cultures around the world that have you know origin story you know in indigenous cultures you know there's a rainbow serpent you know we 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 look at mythologies for explanations of our origins but also to explain um types of loyalties or intangible connections that we feel with each other and um you know I really I was really drawn to all these amazing stories about Vietnamese warrior princesses and you know (laughs) just the the sort of you know, the, 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 the beauty and culture of Vietnam that I hadn't been told about because I was always told about war, starvation, you know, children being, you know, need to be rescued from, you know, napalm. And, you know, these things are true too. But if that's the only picture of your culture that you have, you can be very traumatized by it and reject it. And I, I you know, 
I was finding it very hard to connect with Vietnamese culture and be proud of it with the portrayals and representations that the Western media and movies and relatives are giving me. So yeah, you gotta you gotta just always find solutions and find if if you don't like the picture that's been given to you, you know, you gotta just keep digging. I think sometimes. How was your family? Did you like it? Do you like the people that you grew up with and raised you? Yeah, my my family are very Aussie. I don't know if like that's a thing over in America where you've got like you know you've got very American family, <laughs> got very Aussie family. So. Um, yeah, like, I don't know if you know Paul Hogan from the the past with the shrimp on the barbie. Like, we don't call them shrimp, we call them prawns. But, yeah, so I grew up with a very Australian builder father who, and, and brothers that swore a lot. And um, this is probably why I can also skateboard and fit in with that masculine culture because mm. I grew up around tradesmen and, like, guys that would, you know, like, do burnouts in cars. And, like, you know, it was, it was a very typically in some ways typically Australian western white upbringing that I had um and my my brothers you know they none of my family are particularly cosmopolitan they didn't know much about Vietnamese culture and it didn't seem that important to them I think they they just thought you know we're gonna have a sister or a daughter from Vietnam because there's an orphanage there's a war we've got space let's just do it and deal with it later and then here I am, it's time to deal with it. And nobody had really like any master plan. Um, the Vietnamese community at the time, like they did take me out to meet Vietnamese people occasionally. And it was always so fabricated and it had no naturalness to it because we didn't live in a Vietnamese area. So it was almost like, you know, they'd sort of will Vietnamese people out and we'd have nothing in common. And then, you know, I'd freak out a bit or, you know, I would be questioned too much about why I didn't speak Vietnamese or you know, they'd ask really deep questions of which I had no answers and that were probably quite painful to me. So it, it became quite difficult in a sense to um, connect with Vietnamese people until I was much older, until I was in my 20s. And I moved to the city and um, started studying. And then I, you know, I went the opposite. I had like Vietnamese flatmates and, you know, I was always hanging out with Vietnamese <laughs> you know, people. But, you know, it was, it was a time also where um, Vietnamese people had to carry a lot of trauma they had a lot of stuff to do you know they had to make it I think a lot of those a lot of the families here you know they they have this sort of unspoken um weight that they had to carry as well so you know people just needed to to just not not assimilate but settle settle into who they were going to be in these new lands you know so and there was a lot of that going on as well there are there are a lot of you know adjustments I guess and when you finally got to the Vietnamese community did you ever feel like it was a really tough barrier to break into the community? Um, yeah. Because you look like us, you are us, but yeah. in essence, your software is mm. completely wired differently than us. Sure. Yeah. So second gen are no problems, um, mm. mainly because like when, if, if we go out, Back then, anyway, if we went out for a meal or walking to the train station, we would receive people would drive by and yell out, you know, you gook or you, you know, like a Asian hate or go home. And that's a very bonding experience, regardless Got of it. what family you have. Like, yeah. you can't change this. As you say, I look Vietnamese. Um, so, and second gen, they didn't necessarily want to speak Vietnamese or they didn't want to, mm. you know, they wanted to be who they were, which is, you know, Vietnamese Australians, not. Vietnamese back home 
So the second generation has not been stressful. And if anything, we've all had to pull together a lot of, you know, um, resources and networks and so on just to do the kind of things we want to do. So if we want to tell our story and make a film or hold a festival or whatever, you know, we it's reciprocal and we can work together. But the older generation, um, yeah, I, I found it, you know, very intimidating at times. Um, you know, I don't know culturally what's good etiquette and what's, you know, weird for them. And I require a lot of, you know, um, patience and compassion and vice versa. You know, I think it's not an easy space, that's for sure. Yeah. Did you ever go back to Vietnam to find your birth parents or your family? Yeah, I've been back to um, Vietnam twice and I haven't found family, but there's a, a really wonderful Vietnamese adoptee who ran a project called Operation Reunite where we have a DNA register. So I found a cousin in Geelong in Melbourne, of all places, um, and the more Vietnamese mothers that can take the test that want to, the more we'll have lots of people being reunited. But I've I've had a lot of, you know, frustrating, very sad um, experiences searching of it not working out. Like I found um, I'm from an, an orphanage where they spoke French and one of the directors of the orphanage after the war moved to France. And I wrote her a letter and um, I got it translated into French, I think, for her. Or maybe it was translated to Vietnamese because I knew she was living um, now in, in Paris. And she sent me a letter with some jewelry. So this beautiful jade bracelet. It's all a fake diamond ring, but it's very beautiful. And I still have those. And a letter that was in Vietnamese. And for the life of me, I don't know why I just didn't ask somebody in Australia to translate it. But like there's this dude in in um, Orange County in California that was connected to her. And I thought I'll send it to him to translate because you know I, I can't translate this. And you know, I trust him too because he 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 was related to her. So I sent it to him. And then I never heard from him again. And the letter got lost. And I'll never know what was in that letter. All I have is this this beautiful jewelry and some unknown reason why she sent me that. And a letter that I'll never know what it said. Because and you I can't track her down movie. in Paris? Oh, apparently she's passed away. So there's no no going back oh. on that one. Um, and the guy, yeah, he must have moved. And, you know, people move. I don't know. But yeah, I can, I can try and find him again, but it's going to take a lot of mental energy to pick up all of that because it was back in the day before the internet was as it was. Now I could go on Facebook and just post it and say, somebody translate this and Sheila or somebody would just, you know, a friend would just say, yeah, fine. But um, yeah, back then we relied on the mail and um, I think I had Hotmail, which I don't even have Hotmail anymore. So I've lost a lot of the, you know, the correspondence of how I even found her and him. And yeah, it's it's messy. And that's just one example of searching, you know, these these strange things that happen to you and you live with regrets. And you think, why did I do that? I thought maybe she knew or maybe she's just like telling, you must come to Paris one day. It's really cool over here. And let me tell you a story about my, you know, my my breakfast or something. It could have been pivotal or it could be just banal, but the fact that I had the letter and sent it and have this jewelry here, it's it's you know, it's the stuff of um movies. It's really quite strange and heartbreaking at times being adopted. 
You, you know, as I talked to you in the last um, umpteen minutes about the adoption, your life in adoption, and I'm reading you and I'm reading your facial sort of like reactions as you're telling yeah. the story, I think about a few things. Uh, the, the thing that I think about is, are you just a, a naturally calm, happy human being? Because everything you're reacting to is very calm and happy. Oh or, have you, or have you spent a lot of time dwelling and processing all this heavy yeah. stuff? Because in my head right now, yeah. I want to yell, I want to scream, I want to emote, and I want to be mad at the world for, you know, just the, 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 yeah. the, the, the sadness that I feel just by listening to your story. Yeah. But I'm like, you're so yeah. zen about it. You're so, you know, um, calm and relaxed about all of the stories that you're telling me back again yeah. and i'm <laughs> well there's this context isn't there like you know probably if we were drunk at 3 a.m and i was telling you this by a fireplace I'd be like, ah, you know, <laughs> <Yes. crying. laughs> like you know maybe i would like you know get angry and like i don't know kick a log or something but you know we're we're, we're in a context where i'm i guess i'm just trying to communicate i'm not i'm talking to you but we're also having a conversation which mm -hmm. we share to others that probably would not know what to do in these circumstances either. And there's a there's like a, always a um a tightrope that you're walking where you can fall into despair. And it's not very helpful. It's mm -hmm. and, and also just because I, I'm very fortunate, like when I said before, I, I waited till to skateboard until I did my PhD and wanted to use all my opportunities. Um I don't believe in the rescue narrative, but I do believe in making the most of what comes your way. And I do know I'm very fortunate to have had many opportunities in Australia. <clears throat> and, um, you know, there, there was some silly movie where, you know, there was a, a person that went through some kind of trauma and they were very selfish all the time and always drinking and always loathing themselves and just getting into a mess. But somebody said, you know, you were given everything in life and you turned it into nothing, where some people have nothing in their life and they turn it into everything. And, I, and you have a choice. And I thought, oh, okay, I've, I've, I'm going to take note of that because it's like um, in some ways with adoption you do, you lose everything. So you kind of start off like a blank slate but also with this emptiness and the nothingness. But on the other hand, you have you do have things, um, even just, you know, the fact that so many people uh, risked their lives and went through so much as, you know, boat on boats to get here tells you you have to make a lot of the opportunities of being here because other people have risked their whole family's lives and their own lives coming here for a reason. So here you are. So, yeah, in some ways I feel like I've just got to make the most of what I have here. Um, and the other thing is I remember feeling really guilty because I felt like I had too much. And, you know, obviously I don't know what my family are. They could be fine or they could be not having enough. And I felt very guilty. And someone says, you know, like guilt only gets you so far and then it's meaningless. You get half an hour for guilt. <laughs> it's like, only half an hour? Like, what about 45 minutes? And mm. it's like, oh, you know, as long as you want. But literally, like, it's real. So go through the guilt, but like, put a limit on it. Don't let it go on forever because it's not useful. It's not going to change anything. What's going to change something is, you know, um, action, you know. And um, so, yeah, so definitely, um, I'm not really Zen and calm. I think it's just that I've learned very different survival techniques than a lot of people, not necessarily adoptees. Adoptees have really fine-tuned survival techniques and rationalities and, and so on. They, they do live in a very different world 
to Vietnamese Vietnamese or you know the people that adopt them often um but yeah so I think just trying to make the most of being here <laughs> what you've got you know and just when when something's not right it's like how could it be because you left a war and you know wars aren't clean occasions they're very very messy people get separated people have to make decisions they don't always make in karma times so yeah you just got to try and make your way through it which isn't to say I don't get angry but also um for anyone that's listening I guess it's like you know you can get really stuck and that's okay but it's also okay to just try and give yourself time to work through it and that maybe there are solutions that aren't going to be perfect but they will help you move move through life so you just gotta have a bit of patience sometimes one problem with these podcasts is the people listening have no understanding just as i had no understanding of who you are before we got to know each other or before i got to research your life you've done a lot you've done an extraordinary amount of work in the world of sociology in the world of adoption you have received um, an OAM, and I'm so stupid because I didn't like write it out, like what it, what it meant. But I know it's a medal from Australia. Uh, it's a it's a it's one of the higher um, medals that yeah. the the government awards you in 2006, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a medal in the Order of Australia. Yeah, I I, I received one, and then yes. I gave it back. <laughs> yes, you gave it back. Can you yep. walk me through receiving it? Why did you receive it, yeah. and why did you give it back? Okay. What is what is this what is this medal? Yeah, I don't know. We have in America, um, in the British system of which Australia is a colonized nation. The construction of Australia as a nation is British shaped. Um, you will have various honors and medals, and at, at the top of the medal system, you get knighted. So you're like Lady Somebody or Sir Somebody. Um, Lady so Indigo, willing. Lady Indigo. <laughs> be like so mix a lot you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so in indigo mix a lot um yeah so they it's an award system for i guess you know doing doing something to the community going beyond what's expected some people get them for bravery obviously in the military you get them for bravery and various things but just for the general population uh, if you've excelled in sport or theater or you've done community work the medal system is a way to recognize that and it's an anonymous system where somebody nominates you and they go through some uh, vetting system and then they announce them every Queen's birthday here and a occasion what they call Australia Day, which the Indigenous people here call Invasion Day because it marks the arrival of British um, ships to Australia. And, um, of course, Australia wasn't a, a, an empty country. It wasn't Terranalias, as they say here. Um, with no people, there are Indigenous people here, and with the arrival of the British uh, fleet, they claimed that there weren't. And so here we have the nation of Australia, and I think America can look at its own history and work out you know, parallels, and same with Canada. Um, anyway, so I received the Medal in the Order of Australia, which is at the community level, so there are much higher ones. There's like maybe three tiers, and I'm on the community level. Um, in recognition of my work with adopted Vietnamese because I set up a network for them, to for my community, to meet online, uh, share information about our history, share information about searching for people and so on. So I, I set that up in 2000 on the 25th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War 
and it's now 22 years running, so it's been running for a while. Um, and yeah, it's just a nice. It's you know, you get you get community awards for looking after puppy dogs. You know, <laughs> like it's just a nice thing. It's not don't take it too seriously, but enjoy it in a sense. Um, but anyway, so a lot of people, um, you get to put it after your surname. So I was Indigo Willing OAM or Doctor Indigo Willing OAM, which is short for Melanie Order of Australia, and it's just a you know you can use it at fancy dinners or something. I don't know. And it's great in the sense that it's, it helps open the door for Vietnamese people or Indigenous people or, you know, people that are marginalised in many ways. It's kind of like a status symbol. If you're a lady or so somebody and you want to do a charity dinner or you want to do something, it, it really can help you uh, enter a, a space where there are influential people or people that have funds and so on. Um, and then in 2021... Um, it's always been a mystery how they give out these medals, and they gave one to a tennis player called Margaret Court, who is one of the most brilliant women tennis players in the history of the sport, but she's also very discriminatory towards people that are transgender and people that are gay. She said some, you know, allegedly said some things that aren't very, very uh, helpful to young people that have those experiences, and she received the highest order, so the highest medal you can get. And um, it was actually Clara, um, a doctor, a, a, a transgender doctor that gave hers back. She said, look, I don't want it if you're giving out to her. It's just a joke. And what's the system that you even do this? And then a lot of uh, news people, celebrities, influential authors were giving theirs back. And um, given that I'm in the sport and I, I co-run a skating network for women and non-binary and queer people and um, discrimination is a very important thing for me, and I'm also very conscious of um, whose land I'm on, which is Indigenous land, and holding the ceremony when they do. And on a date that's very offensive, I thought, well, now's a good time just to use that medal again for something useful, which oh. is to make a protest in favour of highlighting equity and telling any youth that feel discriminated against in this nation that they're giving medals to people that say things like their lives don't matter. Uh, it's a good opportunity to say you do matter. And, you know, um, here's a way of protesting it. You know, so like people have given back Nobel Prizes, I think, because they didn't yeah. like who got it. Just, you know, you, you, you can get the medal and that helps you highlight the work that you do and helps you advance a cause. And the same thing with giving it back sometimes. I'm not saying everyone should give it back because it, it does help you. Uh, but at the same time, if if there's an occasion for it to mean something, whether it's giving it back or whatever it is, you take it. And this was an occasion where there was a movement and the momentum to give them back. And I thought, yeah, you know, just sitting around the house and I'm going to give it back because my work speaks for itself. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But by giving it back, it's making a statement when we need to start making statements. And it was after 2020. So it was when Black Lives Matter was, in, you know, really in everyone's mind very strongly um, after, you know, the horrible murder of George Floyd and just making a real difference, not just for um, in America for, for Black Americans, but for Indigenous people here who identify as Black as well. So Black Lives Matter in Australia means um, Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islander peoples as well. So, yeah, it was just an occasion. Sometimes you just don't know what's around the corner and something presents itself and you can take action, you know, and I, I just like taking action. So I thought, yeah, let's let's do it. Like, and So that was the middle in the order of Australia. Sorry, but, a bit long, sorry. When I, was, when I was reading that story, I found it a little humorous in this way. Uh, so you get like a double prestige uh, 
benefit from it because the first time you get the OAM, then you get it, right? That's the first prestigious yeah. moment. But then the yeah. second prestigious moment is you gave it back. So <laughs> so it's like a double, a good double whammy where you actually get it twice. But I'm wondering, does mm. it even make a difference that you, I mean, it does make a difference because you took a stance that you'd give it back. But does it make a difference in people's minds like who introduce you to or in, invite you yeah. to these like big dinners and they're like, well, she is an OEM technically, but she gave it back. So it all yeah. works out in the end or does it, or do people for just forget yeah. like you are, you were, you were given yeah. that OAM um, award. Yeah. The only time I remind people of it is um, because not many minority, it, not many minorities make it to the corridors of power and, make it to the top jobs in parliament or make it to lead universities and a lot of the ones that do have do have these medals or honors system it is it is very important so it was a big thing actually as a Vietnamese person to give it back and a few people tried to talk me out of it and said look you know this can really help your work and um you know I'm a, a casual contract worker so I, I don't have job security I'm not, I'm not you know tenured or any of that kind of stuff and so it was it was a big it was a sacrifice and it still is and um you know you just got to live by what Principles. what your gut tells you because i can't look at my friends that are transgender and sort of think you know like people were doing this and i thought my status was more important than your you know your rights i just it just didn't feel good <laughs> on so many fronts but that's one of them and also of course you know we're Vietnamese, both of us, so we, we both know the difficulties with the Vietnamese diaspora here, the Vietnamese people in Vietnam. We know the divisions and the heartaches and the, the trouble, but it did mean a lot to me that people protested against the Vietnam War that are Australian, um, and people got arrested to try and stop children, you know, getting bombed that they'd, they'd never met. You know, they didn't know anything about Vietnam, and they were, they were protesting to stop a war and getting arrested and throwing their careers in line of risk for something that they believed in. So I, I grew up in an era where I knew about those sort of sacrifices and, you know, they do end up sometimes me being meaningful. So South Africa, uh, Vietnam War, like various social protests, you know, they can be quite meaningful and make a difference and you can be on different sides of history. And um, I'm making no judgments about, you know, um, the Vietnamese political system at all. I'm just really talking from a child that was in an orphanage and saw lots of, you know, death and destruction to to people that could have been my family, that it just meant something that people here didn't want that to happen and stood up against, you know, the violence of a military, you know, operation more than anything. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you do get it. You do. You, no, it, it's fun to say I gave it back, and especially, like, sometimes I do meet important people and they're like, you know, you might forget to put their OAM in there or their, their medal or they're just acting pompous. And it's like, yeah, well, I had one and I gave it back. So calm down, dude. Like, you know, <laughs> I'll put it down on the paper for you, but don't take yourself so seriously. And, you know, they get surprised because I'm a skateboarder and, you know, I don't look like I'd, you know, even be close to having anything like that. And it's like, yeah, but we're, we're Vietnamese. <laughs> we've got like, we've got stuff, we've got skills, <laughs> we've got, we've got, you know, determination and maybe some of us just don't live up to your stereotypes but um yeah I, I do think at times we're we're gonna have to make sacrifices and particularly now post 2020 we know we have to stand up against things that can be uncomfortable and risk our careers or risk things but 
you know, you, you can't always be complicit with things. You you shouldn't have to choose, but sometimes you will have to. And I think, you know, that was just a minor thing. You're right. It, it's it's just a metal. Like what what does it really, you know, it's it's nothing really, but it, it's something. So just trying to keep yourself accountable as well, I guess, to where power is and what power you have, how to expend it in a useful way is a good thing. I want to just ask a little bit further about this scenario because it, it fascinates me. I don't run into a lot of people in the United States with, we don't, I don't think we do. We, we might like the Congre Congressional Medal of Honor is yeah. the most I can think of, or they give it out for a war for, for arts and music. Yeah. But is there a way that you could have the government do something about that tennis player to have you reclaim the OAM and other people? Is there yeah. a movement towards that? Because I can't imagine just giving it back and saying, you know, that's the end of it. No, yeah. I want my thing back. But you have to do action as the government, right? Yeah. So you, you, you probably could if they rearrange the whole, like you protest against the organization that does the, the medals and, you know, who knows, like maybe those people will want to mobilize on that. But it's, yeah, there's just so many other things to do. And the fact that they give out the awards is still as a symbolic of um, British colonialism on the Queen's birthday and on what's called Invasion Day or slash Australia Day, you know, it's it's still not right. Until they create an award system that is far more respectful to First Nations people, again, it, it's, you know, it's it's not it's not great, and it's it's no disrespect to the indigenous people that have received them, and you know, Vietnamese people and other people that have accepted and and keep theirs or whatever. But it's definitely um, an issue has been raised about what they symbolise and when they're given out. That still feels very, um, you know, it Colonial. feels like it's urgent, urgent to change. It's very disrespectful, and it could very much be changed. It's so easy to change. It's something that's easy to change, you know. So um, if there is a movement of people that are pushing to to change the award system and to change that date, um, yeah, you know, I would gladly sign that again for sure. But um, is, it a medal moment, that you, is it a medal you send back or do you physically just uh, publicly renounce it? Yeah, so you publicly renounce it and they take you off the record. So I, I had my medal code and they've taken me off the website, I guess. Um, and you, it's announced in the Gazette down in Canberra by the government, by the Governor General, whoever does it. Um, and you, you send the medal back, but I actually lost mine, so I'm gonna have to find it. I sent they, they gave me three, and they have most of them, so I've just got to find the other one. And um, yeah, you know, I feel that there's just other things to worry about now. You know, that like I said, like I, I'm I'm very in, in, instinctive and impulsive, and I like living in the moment. And when those moments come, you know, I like making a decision that's meaningful if I can. I make a lot of mistakes. I'm a real doofus at times. You know, I've got to learn a lot, like, you know, like just the way I was raised. I'm very ignorant around many things that I really wish I wasn't. So, you know, but there's there's so much to do that that's just a, a one. Again, it's like a chapter. You know, it's like I could chase that letter that I lost and make that a big thing. And it's like, you know, maybe there's a time and a place for all these things, you know, and yeah. There's just definitely a lot of other things that need to be done at present. So, um, yeah, you know, and also just where you end up. I never thought I'd be a skateboarder writing books about equity and skateboarding and social change and running a, a, a you know, co-running a, 
you know, skateboarding network and a, a network about consent in skateboarding and doing research on sport. You know, I, was, I just, you, you can't sort of choose where you end up sometimes. It's a, just sort of like a bit of a nice surprise and, yeah, you just got to <laughs> take things as they come and, yeah, make the most of it, I guess. that That's just maybe me. Yeah, making the most of whatever's around. <laughs> kudos to your your integrity because that takes a lot of uh, strength and courage to return something like that and the prestige that comes with it, and and perhaps the benefits of helping out the community at large, and that gets stripped away because you hand back your your medal, mm. your this prestige, this object of prestige, symbol of prestige, and. To have that sort of like dedication to doing the right thing is a, is a, such a big thing. Yeah, well, you know, it, it is what it is. <laughs> That's my philosophy. I think sometimes, you know, but yeah, it, it was interesting that you um, yeah, you you've done your research <laughs> on my life, <laughs> and um, I hope again that you know anyone that's that's listening. I mean, we we've I, I find at least Vietnamese Australians we we're very driven and we can accomplish a lot we've been through a lot of struggle um and each story is really important um but it's also not linear you know you can have ups and downs twists and turns with being a Vietnamese person so you know I just feel like if somebody you know has these occasions where they 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 they, they do get you know um some kind of opportunity to make a difference even if it's a little painful it's it's probably you know, it's not as scary as they think. <laughs> It'd be my advice on the metal thing is like, you know, it's it it's it's not it's not it's not always bad to take a risk. Same with skateboarding. Sometimes taking a risk is just gonna put you in a better place all around. You know, thank you so much for today. I um got to know so much. I came for the adoption stories, but I began to see the bigger picture of your life, which is, you know, the skateboarding is very symbolic of freedom and integrity and, you know, just living a life here in the moment and being present to what's in front of us. Yeah. So thank you for the conversation. It's always a pleasure to discuss being Vietnamese and what it means to be Vietnamese in the community. I'm, I'm just so honored and thank you so much. Yeah, of course. And thank you for the work that you do in the adoption, the Vietnamese adoption world. And I look forward actually to, you know, seeing more of, of the work and hearing more about it in the future and, you know, all the yeah, developments. Can I, give some, that... um, can I give some shout outs? Is yes, that allowed? please, please, please. Ooh, yes. All right. <laughs> so I've been talking for ages about um, the work that I do, which is with Adopted Vietnamese International, but I'm going to give a huge, huge shout out to Linnell Long, who runs the Intercountry Adoptee uh, Perspectives uh, Group. She is also in Erica Hayasaki's book. I think there's a bit written about her. And she looks after the um, networks of all people that are adopted from everywhere. So if you're adopted from Sri Lanka, the Caribbean, Brazil, and you're having the same kind of issues, she runs a hub for adoptees to talk about searching for birth parents, finding connections, socializing with each other and so on. So she's of enormous help and runs a really great website for anybody that's adopted that's listening. So not just Vietnamese adoption, all adoptions, but also just really helpful. Um, and of course, Erica Hayasaki's book is just, uh, it's very beautiful. Um, and she really did her research. And I would normally not like outsiders to come into my community and write about us because I, I feel like 
that doesn't always work well unless that person is very dedicated and sensitive. So it, it's it's so well researched, it's so beautiful, and she's just weaves a very uh, important tale about the twins uh, being reunited and also meeting their Vietnamese families. So um, and yeah, a shout out to you because it's been so nice for you just to reach out to adoptees and just communicate with us as you know about our life story. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It really is my pleasure and to read about the twins uh, out of Erica's book, Some More Sisters, was something that I knew nothing about. I mean, I know nothing. I know mm. nothing about, I'm learning a lot about our culture as I'm doing this work. I know nothing. I like, I, the more I dig, the, the more I realize I, I truly know nothing. And I never heard of this sort of uh, angle of the Vietnamese adoption process and the life and times of people who are adopted. And, you know, we don't, just as lay people, we don't think about these things until we like have to kind of be thrusted into the world of, of a Vietnamese adopted person. And mm -hmm. then we start to see the journey, uh, especially after somebody like Erica puts together, you know, this five-year work in her book that she puts. And then, so that would open a door for me to meet somebody like you to really open up the discussion about being adopted and, and the Vietnamese adoption process. Yeah, well, well, thank you. So it's, um, yeah, I definitely hope that you get to speak to many more of us because we're in filmmakers, we're like designers, we're writers, academics, we just skateboard, you know. Like, yes, skaters. Each one, we, we bring our, our own particular unique outlook to it and change things just a little. And particularly with um, so-called mixed race kids as yeah. well, like all the kids that came out, you have some really cool conversations ahead of you. You know, I uh, I don't normally um, ask for people's handles a lot uh, as I'm recording like this, but I'm going to ask for yours because I think that people should come to your Instagram to see <laughs> the, the the pictures that you've posted, and they're wonderful. You know, I couldn't get enough of it because, you know, you see these um, uh, videos of you uh, doing all these tricks and stuff like that, so it's fascinating. I, I really <laughs> enjoyed it. So what what's your Instagram handle? Okay, if you, if you want to see like a middle-aged Vietnamese mom skateboarding that's an academic, this is the place to go or not. Um, so it is at Good Willing Hunting because my last name is Willing and it's a play off the movie Good Will Hunting because he was an author orphan and he went to uni and stuff. So, um, yeah, Good Willing Hunting is my handle. <laughs> Wonderful. Skate or die. <laughs> it's awesome. Thank you so much once again. Okay, thank you. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.